Revelation chapter 10. My children have ears like bats. My wife and I could be discussing something in hushed whispers, and it's like they have our conversations bugged. What was that about? I heard you say something. What was that? What are you guys talking about? My response tends to be something, especially when we're whispering, which means we don't want them to hear, tends to be something like, well, you don't need to know. Uh, And when there's something that you need to know, I'll make sure that you know it. Of course, that's not satisfactory for my children most of the time. Ironically, it happened this morning after I'd already decided I was going to use this illustration. My oldest came into our bedroom this morning. I heard you guys talking. (laughs) What What are you talking about? My wife turned to me and said, the Lord wants you to use this illustration. He gave you one right now. There there are things that we don't reveal to our children, and there are things that we do. I don't explain everything I do to my kids, despite their constant desire to know. There are many things I do tell them, however, and those are the things that I'm concerned that they know and trust and listen to and obey. There are things that God has revealed to us in the same way, things that that God has revealed to us that we're to be concerned with, and there are things that God has concealed from us. And in the passage we're going to read this morning in Revelation 10, we see both. We see that there are things that God has concealed and things that God has revealed. God's people need not concern themselves with what He's concealed. That's His business, no matter how much we want to know. But we're called to concern ourselves with what He's revealed both about himself, his plan, and what he desires of us. So let's look at Revelation 10. Uh, Revelation 10 and 11, or to the middle of chapter 11, is another interlude. Remember, we, we saw an interlude in chapter 7 as well. Between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, there's an interlude. There's a pause, and it's sort of like the scene shifts. And so it's here in chapters 10 and 11, there's a pause and a scene shift between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And like in Revelation 7, each of these interludes or excurses has two scenes, and both of these scenes really address, we'd say, the same subject matter, but does so from slightly different angles, different images and and symbols. And like Revelation 7... The interlude here in Revelation 10 and 11 shifts the focus from these judgments, the seal judgments in chapters six, uh, or in chapter six, and then the the trumpet judgments in chapters eight and nine, and then again in uh, chapter 11. The end of chapter 11 is the seventh trumpet. It shifts the focus from these judgments on the world and its inhabitants to the situation of God's people in the world. Right? Revelation 7 showed the security of God's people in the world. Who will stand in the day of God's wrath? Well, it's those who have been sealed by the Lord. They will stand. God's people will stand. And so here in chapter 10, we shift looking not at the security of God's people in the world, but the responsibility of God's people in the world. We're going to look today just at the first of these two scenes in chapter, in chapter 10. As we work through this passage, we'll see first 
what God has concealed, and then what God has revealed, and then finally, why God has revealed it. So what God has concealed, what God has revealed, and why God has revealed it. So look with me at uh, starting in verse 1, verses 1 to 4, we'll look at what God has concealed. Verse 1, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. So John, John's vision of the trumpets is interrupted here. He's got another vision. He sees an angel coming down out of heaven. He's been seeing these visions from a vantage point in heaven. Now his vision is he's standing on the earth. He sees the angel coming down. The angel's described in these very majestic terms. Some people have thought that this angel is actually Christ. I think there's reasons why that's not the case. But, but in any event, this angel is coming from the presence of God, coming down out of heaven. Then verse 2, and he had in his hand a little book or a little scroll which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. So the angel comes down and he's holding a book or a scroll, very much like in chapter 5 where we had the scroll with the seven seals that only the lamb could open. That, that was sealed and, and Christ opened it. This book comes down and it's open. Now what is it? Is it the same scroll as the one in Revelation 5 or as others have suggested? Is it, is it something that contains the rest of the book of Revelation or Revelation chapter 11? We don't know. It doesn't say. But the most important thing to focus on is whatever it says, it's a word from God. It's coming down out of heaven and it's revealed. It's open. And that's important. We're going to come back to that. But before we can even ask about that book, there's an ear-piercing sound. Verse 3, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And we has, when he has cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. So John hears the angel cry out and he hears the seven peals of thunder. You, of course, know what the seven peals of thunder are, right? No, we've never heard of these before. John speaks of them as if we've heard of them before. Oh, yeah, you know, the seven peals of thunder. This is when they sound. But, but we don't know what they are. It's, it's possible that they're another cycle of judgments like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, these, these seven uh, sets of, of judgments that we see cycling through in these, in these chapters, sort of parallel. We don't know that for certain, but what we do know is that they're more than just peals of thunder. They're more than just rumbles of thunder. It's some kind of divine revelation. It says the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. They're personified. In the next verse, they're said to have spoken, right? And John is, is ready to write down what they say. So there's something that's that's articulate about it. John can hear it and understand it, and he's ready to write it, write it down. But then verse 4, when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. John's forbidden to write what he's heard in the seven peals of thunder. He's told to seal it up. These things are to remain hidden. 
This is very similar to Daniel chapter 12 where uh, Daniel writes on this scroll and, and, and is asking, when are these things going to happen? When are these things going to happen? And the angel tells him, seal it up. The time is not yet. The time's not yet for these things to be revealed. Here, John is not told, you know, it's not time yet. He's just told, don't write it. It's not for you. And what's frustrating is we're not told anything else about the thunders. We got lots of questions. Why, did he, why was he allowed to hear the thunders if he's not allowed to tell us about them? What are they? What do they say? And perhaps this is to remind us that despite all that God has revealed, and in this book we are seeing much that God has revealed about His plan for the history of the world and how He's going to bring all of that to fulfillment, despite all that God has revealed, there is much that God in His infinite wisdom has caused to remain concealed. It reminds us that as God's people, we're not to go beyond what is written. That our concern especially as we read a book like Revelation, is not with what God has concealed. It's with what God has revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things He has revealed to us are for us and for our children. And as much as we are curious about things like this, we have to understand that if God has not revealed it, it's not because He's made a mistake, it's because we don't need to know it. Apparently what the seven thunders are and what they say, as interesting as it would be to know, are not necessary for us. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and apparently knowing what those things are and what they say are not necessary for life and godliness for us. And as much as we would like to know the step-by-step details of God's plan, He's not chosen to reveal those things to us, which means we don't need to know, which means we shouldn't spend time speculating because we're not responsible for what He's not revealed. And no matter how hard you try, if He's concealed it, you're not going to be able to know it. So, be cautious about those who claim to have this secret knowledge that God has suddenly revealed to them that nobody has seen for over 2,000 years, who write New York Times bestsellers claiming uh, by stringing together a couple Bible verses that they've finally figured out God's plan and it's been secret now, but, but I found it out. It's not because God's revealed to them, it's because they're making it up. The secret things belong to the Lord. But not everything is concealed. The things that are revealed are for us. Remember, the book in the angel's hand is open. And in the following verses, the angel speaks, and John is permitted to write what the angel says. So what's revealed here for God's people? Let's look at verses 5 through 7. What God has revealed. What God has revealed is the mystery of, of his plan. Verse 5, then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it that there will be no delay no longer. 
But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants the prophets. What God has revealed is the mystery of his plan. What's God's mystery? Mystery does not sound like something that's revealed. In fact, mystery sounds like something that's hidden. But, but mystery doesn't mean here something that's hidden or unknown or unknowable. Rather, it's, it's something that could not be known had God not revealed it. Something that was, was veiled or hidden in the past, but now has been more fully and clearly made known. It's common language in the New Testament. Uh, in many, many places in the New Testament, the apostles speak of the mystery of God, and it, it's always referring to some aspect of God's plan to redeem a people and renew all things for His own glory. That is, the mystery of God is His, his plan of redemption revealed in the gospel. That's clearer if you look at verse 7. It says, the, the mystery of God is finished as He preached to His servants the prophets. Now, that word preached, it's not the usual Greek word for preach or proclaim. It's actually the word evangelize. It's the word preach the gospel. And so it's saying that the mystery of God is finished just as He preached in the gospel to His servants, the prophets. So the, the mystery of God is that which God spoke when He preached the gospel to the prophets ahead of time. The mystery of God, the, the plan, the, the gospel plan of God, hidden in past ages and now revealed. But what, it, what is revealed about this mystery here? And the focus is not on the content of that mystery, the content of the gospel. The New Testament is filled with that. The focus here is not on the content, but on the reality of its completion. The reality of the mystery's completion. You say the mystery of God is finished or complete. We learn three things about here about that. Uh, number one, the, the completion is certain. Right? When, when the angel begins to speak, he raises his right hand. And, and he swears an, an oath, a solemn oath to God. By God's name, this is going to happen. And he swears by, by him who lives forever and ever. Think about that. We make plans, but those plans are intrinsically uncertain. Because as James reminds us, our lives are but a vapor. And so we say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Our plans die with us, but God lives forever and ever, and His plans are as eternal and certain as His existence. Now, that should encourage us, and certainly would have encouraged John's original readers to persevere in their faith. God's plan for the world, His, His gospel plan to redeem people and make all things new is going to come to completion as shortly as the Lord lives. His plans can no more cease to come to pass than he who lives forever and ever can cease to exist. 
Its completion is certain. Its completion is also cosmic. Notice that the angel has uh, taken his stand over the land and the sea. This is a representative of the fact that it's a, it's a universal message. There's nothing in creation that is outside of the scope of this plan. And, and notice too, the angel swears not just by him who lives forever and ever, but, but the one who created heaven and the things in it, and earth and the things in it, and the sea in the things in it. And just tuck this away for, for, for the coming weeks. In chapters 12 through 14, we see uh, introduced the enemies of God's people. One is Satan, the dragon who falls from heaven. One is a beast from the sea. And one is a beast from the earth. And yet here we're told that God is the one who made heaven and everything in it, who made the sea and everything in it, who made the earth and everything in it. These enemies of God's people are not equal with God. They're but creatures. And that should be comforting for God's people. Certainly would have been for the original readers as they faced persecution and suffering in their own day. God's plan is cosmic in scope. It will ultimately deal with all evil and sin and injustice in all creation. And God's mystery, God's plan, the completion is coming. It's certain it's cosmic and it's coming. The angel says, there will be delay no longer, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, this is the seventh trumpet, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Remember, this, this interlude is happening between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet, along with the seventh seal and the seventh bowl, we would argue, talks about the return of Christ. And so, when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet, that is when God's plan comes to completion. So, the time of the completion of God's plan is coming. The time of full redemption and renewal is coming. There's a time when there will be delay no longer. But, but notice that we're not there yet. The seventh trumpet hasn't sounded so that means while there is a time coming when there is no more delay, there is a delay now. We're living in it. Now understand, when you hear delay, we, we, we think of delay as something unforeseen, something out of our control, something that prevents us from being on time. Like bad weather delays a flight or a traffic jam delays a road trip. But that's not what we mean when we refer to a delay in the fulfillment of God's plan. God's plan is not delayed because of something outside of His knowledge or control, something that keeps Him from being on time. The delay is an intentional part of His timing. He intends to delay. And we might say, why? Why, why would God delay the, the fulfillment of His plan? And again, God hasn't told us everything, but we know at least one reason. Second Peter Chapter 3, Peter says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? You say Jesus is coming. Where is He? 
Sure doesn't seem like He's coming. Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And say, it doesn't seem like Jesus is coming. Maybe He's, maybe he's stuck in traffic. But Peter goes on to say, they, they don't see things clearly. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The delay of God's plan is not because of His impotence. It's not because He's unable to do it. It's because of His patience. God desires all people to be saved from the coming judgment. And that leads us to why God has revealed this, why it forms part of this interlude that specifically addresses the people of God, the situation of the people of God in the world. Right? Think about Acts 1. Acts 1, before Jesus ascends, the apostles are, are asking Jesus, Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Jesus, tell us the plan. Can you give us the timeline? When are you coming? When's the kingdom going to be established? Can we know? What does Jesus say? He says, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the days and the times that the Father has set by His own authority. You don't need to know that. But what you do need to know is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, while there are things that God has concealed, God has revealed the mystery of His plan, not just to comfort His people, but also to propel the ministry of His people. While the fulfillment of His plan is delayed, God employs His people in the ministry of proclaiming the gospel as the means by which people come to be saved from the coming judgment. So why God has revealed it? Why has God revealed the mystery of His plan? It's the ministry of His people. Let's look at verses 8 to 11. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go and take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take, take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but your, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So John is commissioned, and all of God's people after him are called to take in and speak out the word of God. John's instructed to eat the book, which might sound somewhat odd uh, to us, but it's really reminiscent of the prophetic ministries of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are both told to eat the Word of God that they are to proclaim. It's a, it's a symbolic way of talking about the, the prophet's call to take in, to internalize the message for the purpose of proclamation. And so perhaps the best way to understand what this book is is that whatever it is, it's just the Word of God that reveals the mystery of the gospel which John is to then proclaim. Because then he's told that he must prophesy again. He's to take in the word that he might prophesy again, that he might proclaim again God's word to the world. That's John's commission. As we see, I think, in the next chapter, it's also the commission of the people 
of God, who are likewise given authority to prophesy, to proclaim the Word of God in the world. And so in the same way, we're called to eat the Word of God, to take it in, to internalize it, to digest it, to absorb it into our bloodstream so that's what comes out of us most naturally, not just for the purpose of information, but for the purpose of proclamation. The Word needs to get into us so that the Word can go out through us. God's revealed this ministry of His people to take in the Word of God and speak out the Word of God, and John is also told that this ministry of the Word is going to be both sweet and bitter. Notice several times we're told that this book is going to taste sweet as honey in John's mouth, but it's going to make his stomach bitter. It's going to make him sick. That might sound odd. Shouldn't the Word of God just always be sweet? But for both John and for all who proclaim the Word of God, whether that's in the pulpit or in private conversations, it's the same. The ministry of the Word will be bittersweet. It'll be sweet because it it announces the gracious truth of the gospel, which God offers full and free salvation, forgiveness to all who hear through simple trust in Jesus. It's also bitter because the same message likewise warns of judgment for those who refuse to heed the gracious invitations of the gospel and persist in their rejection of God. The message of the gospel, the the mystery of God that we are to proclaim, both saves and judges. It announces salvation to those who trust Jesus and warns of judgment for those who do not. And while we as Christians must not be embarrassed to speak the truth of God's Word, the truth about God's good, just, eternal judgment and the holy terrors of His wrath, we must never do so with glee. There are some, I fear, who are in such a hurry to make sure that we know that God is not merely loving, forgiving everybody, but that God also has wrath against sin who become more excited about the judgment that is poured on those who who reject Jesus. But not even the Lord Himself does this. He explicitly says that He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus Himself weeps over the unrepentance of Jerusalem. And so we would do well to remember what what D.L. Moody said, that when we preach on hell, we might at least do it with tears in our eyes. Whatever opposition or hardness we, uh, and hardship we endure from the world, we must take care never to speak of those who are perishing in their sin with indifference or excitement about the judgment they will endure. And the mystery of God's plan is revealed not just to comfort us, but to compel us that while there is yet time, we must proclaim the Word of God to the world so that men and women under judgment would be saved from the wrath to come. So that's exactly what I will do. If you're not a Christian, listen to me. God has indeed delayed His judgment, but it's not because He's slow. It's not because there is no judgment coming, but it's because He has no pleasure in your death. He has made provision that you would turn to Him and be saved. 
In the death of Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, He bore the penalty for your sin that men and women might be redeemed and renewed. So do not be like those at the end of chapter 9 that we looked at last week who, in spite of what they see and hear, refuse to repent. Because while there is a delay now, there is a day coming when there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel will sound his trumpet and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And on that day, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting retribution on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord. They, you, if you are not a Christian, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And in that day, it will be too late. But friends, hear me. God has no pleasure in your death, but rather that you would turn and live. He earnestly desires that you would find forgiveness, hope, and life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in His infinite patience and kindness, He has delayed the fulfillment of His plan in order that you might come to Him to have life. So while the Lord delays His coming, do not delay your coming to Christ to receive the blessings of His free and full salvation. Turn from your allegiance to sin and self. Transfer your trust to Him. Swear allegiance to Him, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb slain for sinners who delivers us from the wrath to come. As surely as the Lord lives, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you, while you have concealed things from us, there is much that you have revealed to us. You have revealed that you offer this salvation to us in the Lord Jesus, and that you, uh, we, we are compelled by your love to preach Christ. Lord, comfort us with your word. Send us out to preach your word. And God, we do pray for the coming of Christ. We look for the day when there will be no more delay, when the coming one will come. And in that day, those who are righteous by faith will live. And God, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.